Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of Wild, Messy, Infinite Love. I am your host, Eric Snader, a.k.a. Brother Snades, and we are back at it for our 31st episode, uh, which is quite insane to me. <laughs> um, but we are here. We are ready to record. Um, we are in the midst of a four-part series on how eschatology and ecotheology inform our creation care practices. This is sort of a crash course on my final master's thesis paper that I've spent the last academic year writing and which I am now finished with and which I've presented to um, the Religion and Society Conference, and I am now presenting to you, my podcast listeners. Uh, so last week we talked about eschatology, and this week we are talking about ecotheology. Um, and I am very, 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 very excited to talk about this. But before that, I want to go over just a few quick updates with all of you. Um, first and foremost, I just want to say thank you for all of you who are here listening to this podcast. I really appreciate that you are willing to listen to what I have to say. Um, secondly, I want to encourage you to continue engaging with me on whatever capacity that you're able to, whether that is leaving a comment or a rating on the podcast, whether that is liking and subscribing to the podcast, whether that is finding me on my different social media platforms and, you know, digging into conversation with me, whatever that might be, um, I just encourage you to continue engaging with me in whatever material it is that I'm talking about. In this particular time, we're talking about eschatology and ecotheology, but this podcast, as you know, covers a wide variety of subjects and a wide variety of interests and passions because love is infinitely incarnated in so many different ways. Um, so yeah, in whatever way that you are able to engage with me, I would really love it. I would love to hear from you. I would love to talk with you more about this. One of my things that I'm most passionate about is, yeah, I'm passionate about writing. I'm passionate about producing these podcasts. Excuse me. Oh, I'm passionate about producing these podcasts, but above that, I am passionate about entering into conversation with other people. Um, looking back on the past year and a half of this podcast, the best podcasts for me have been the ones where I've had other people on and I've had the chance to talk to someone else about it. So I absolutely want to open up that floor for you, the listener as well. Please, please, please feel free to reach, reach out to me in whatever way that you can or feel comfortable with because I would love to engage with you more. But with all that being said, without further ado, let us jump into episode 31, part two of the eschatology and ecotheology series. This one is called Ecotheology. Let's talk about it. Okay, so in order to start talking about ecotheology, I want to start at the beginning. 
um, I want to talk about the creation myth in the book of Genesis, which for me is a foundational understanding of scripture, a foundational interpretation that really pours into everything that I do, everything that I see in the world. It really begins with this creation myth. Um, And I know I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, but one of the ways that I want to start thinking about this or framing this is that the biblical creation myth or the Hebrew creation myth that we see in the book of Genesis did not necessarily just appear out of thin air, but rather it was a creation myth that was heavily shaped by the other creation myths that were surrounding it at the time. Um, This would have been written around the time of the Jewish people being in exile in Babylon. So in particular, the uh, Genesis creation myth shares a lot of similarities with the Babylonian creation myth, also known as the Enuma Elish. And what's really interesting about the Enuma Elish is, and a lot of different creation stories, is that creation, um, love, spirit, source, uh, the cosmos, the earth, humanity, all this kind of stuff is poured forth from some moment of disruption, some moment of violence. So, for instance, in the Enuma Elish, uh, the earth is created by the gods having this giant war. So, essentially, there's this uh, battle between Marduk, who is the sky god, and Tiamat, who is sort of the representation of the chaos waters or the great deep, you know, this this water goddess. And Marduk slays Tiamat and then starts breaking apart Tiamat. And out of that is where the earth comes from. That's where the oceans come from. That's where humanity comes from. But it's all born of chaos and blood and violence. Whereas the Genesis creation myth is a little different. Um, while it holds a lot of these same similarities, uh, for instance, the the goddess Tiamat is very much present in the Genesis creation myth in the form of the chaos waters or the great deep. So at the beginning of the Genesis creation myth, um, you know, it talks about the spirit of God hovering over these chaos waters, hovering over the deep. Um, this is a direct callback to Tiamat in this Babylonian Babylonian creation myth. But what makes the Hebrew story different, the Genesis story different, is that creation is something that springs out of abundance. Uh, creation is something that is breathed forth. It is not something that is born of violence. It is something that inherently bears this mark of love, this mark of spirit, this mark of God, whatever you want to call it. So in the Genesis creation myth, you have this image of the the spirit of God almost hovering over these waters and the spirit of God breathes forth creation. So the waters are breathed forth from this spirit. The stars and the sky are breathed forth. The 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 land the earth is breathed forth from the spirit of god the the animals the beasts of the field the fish of the sea the birds of the air humanity itself is all breathed forth with this from this spirit of god almost to say that each and every created thing is imbued with the breath of god each created thing is imbued 
with the Spirit of God. And because of this, all things are sacred. All things. The birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the ground beneath us, the water around us, our fellow humanity, all of it is sacred. All of it holds infinite worth. And this is the jumping off point for eco theology because ultimately what eco theology is asking it's asking a question of who are we who are we and what is what are we doing here what lies at the heart of our existence um you know last week we were talking about eschatology which is this christian narrative of hope it's this christian narrative that's answering the question of what is our place in this world our place in this world is to be vessels of hope and bringers of the kingdom of god as for eco theology it asks a more existential question of who are we what are we what is this thing that we call life so if you look at it through the lens of this creation myth that we see in Genesis, who we are is beings of sacred worth that are imbued with the divine spirit. And this is what this podcast is about. This is what a lot of my work is about, is that idea that we all share this one spirit of love that's wild and messy and infinite. And it's so unique in the sense that it creates almost this paradox within our lives. And I know I've talked about this before in previous podcasts as well, but it's this paradox of we are unique. We are divinely special. There is something about us that is absolutely beautiful. You in all of your you-ness is a wonderful and much needed gift in the world, as someone like Rob Bell might say. Um, We are individuals. There are things about us that make us unique. Um, you know, we we as a human species come from unique cultures and different heritages, and we all have a different history, and we all have a different genetic makeup. We are all unique, but at the same time, we're also not very special at all. So the paradox is that we're divinely special, but we're also not very special at all, because at the very core, the molecular makeup. Sure, we have different genes, but our molecular makeup is all the same. We're all made out of stardust and atoms and protons and neutrons, excuse me, and electrons. We're all just energy that's in relationship with one another. We all share this similar makeup. So we are unique. We are different. We are set apart. We are of infinite value, but we're also all part of this same value system. We are all sacred. We're all just part of it, if that makes sense. So the answer that eco-theology brings forth is that all things, both human and non-human, are of sacred worth and infinite value. And when you start to wrap your mind around this, when you start to picture this in reality, you really do start to gain a broader picture of the whole thing. It's almost like your mindset changes, the game changes. It's no longer uh, a mad scramble to the top of the pyramid. All of a sudden, your your vision shifts and you see the 
the facade or the falseness of this narrative of you continually have to keep climbing the pyramid. You have to continually keep keep climbing to the top so that you can become better than everyone else because at our hearts, we are the same as everyone else. And that's not to discredit each of our unique gifts and talents and passions and purposes because those are absolutely part of our lives and they are what make us us. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing in the world. But the game also changes because all of a sudden it's not about getting to the top. It's about bringing us all together into deeper connection with one another. And what this does is it changes our mode of thinking from the world being something that's scarce, something that is not enough for everyone, something that doesn't have enough resources, something that doesn't have enough food to go around, money to go around, um, shelter to go around. It changes our mind, our, our, our eyes. It changes our viewpoint. It changes our mindset into viewing the world not as this place of scarcity where there's not enough. It changes our viewpoint to see the world as abundant and overflowing with love and peace and joy and grace. So what eco-theology does, in addition to asking this question of who are we, it also makes another step beyond just, well, what, who are we? It goes beyond to take a step to intentionally include the planet in the conversation as well. Because as we see in the creation myth, it's not just humanity that bears the divine spirit. It's all of it including the planet, which then means that not only do humans have infinite and sacred value and worth, but so too does Mother Earth. And that, my friends, is one of the most important steps that you can take when it comes to taking care of the planet And when it comes to counteracting things like climate change, because it all of a sudden changes our viewpoint from viewing the world as this this stockpile of resources that we continue to plunder. It changes our viewpoint to view the world not as something to be consumed, but rather it views it as a vital member of our community. Um, you know, one of one of the values, and there are many values, there are infinite values to the earth, but one of its values is that it literally provides sustenance for all who live on it. It provides shelter. It provides water and food. It provides the things that we need to live. It provides the conditions for us to be able to not only live, but thrive. That is an important step to take when it comes to combating climate change because a lot of what is happening with climate change, and we'll get into this in next week's episode when we talk about climate change at a, uh, at a longer, in a longer period of time, but effectively one of the main causes of climate change is the incessant plundering of the earth's natural 
resources and the total disregard for the well-being and health of the earth through our energy consumption, through our work practices, through the way that we go through producing products, from the way that we go about um, consuming products, everything, all of it is somehow connected to the well-being and health of the earth. And if you're not viewing the earth as a vital member of our community, if you're not viewing the earth as inherently bearing sacred worth and value, yeah, it's totally easy to just say, fuck it, let's just dump oil into the sea, let's just dump our trash all over, let's just burn tons and tons of coal and just pump these carbon dioxide particles up into the air and just continually pump these greenhouse gases into the air because who cares this is just my plaything this is just something that i am here to use and have essentially this is mine this earth is mine it's not its own being it's not something that's a part of our community it's just something for us to use and that my friends is a dangerous, dangerous precedent because that precedent has been what has been the mainstream for a number of years. That precedent is what has gotten us to this moment that we live in where we literally stand upon the brink of unnamed natural disasters. Uh, We stand upon the brink of the collapse of agriculture, we stand upon the brink of the collapse of society itself. Um, You know, we stand on the brink of what for many feels like the end of the world. But if we don't start from a place of eco-theology, if we don't start from a place of everything has inherent and sacred worth hardwired into its very being... It's really hard to then take that step to, well, this is why we need to take care of it. Um, This is the absolutely first step. Um, And while it's really important to view this ideologically and sort of begin wrapping our minds around this in an ideological sense, it's even more vastly important to experience it in reality in your lived experiences Um, because when we start to actually live it not only does it deeply shape our understanding of ourselves but it also deeply shapes our view of the planet around us and what I mean by this lived reality is begin actually going out into the planet, spending time outside, spending time breathing in the air, spending time gardening, spending time, you know, whatever it might look like, spending time in nature. Um, One of the things that I think about a lot when I talk about creation care is just how many profound moments of divine encounter that I've had in nature. Um, you know, thinking back to my high school and college years, 
some of the most profound times I had came while I was at summer camp, um, working up in the mountains in central Pennsylvania and being out in nature and finding God in those spaces. Because when I was at summer camp, I was spending 24-7 outdoors, out in nature, out in the fresh air. And it was in those moments where I found God most keenly, where I came into tight community, not only with God, but also the people around me. Um, I came into tight community with um, my fellow staff members, with my fellow campers, and it all was a space that was created by being in nature, by going on hikes, by swimming in lakes, by, you know, foraging in the forest undergrowth for different herbs and twigs and, you know, all sorts of stuff, building fires and going canoeing and rock climbing and like getting our hands and feet in the mud of nature, so to speak. Um, or again, I mean, like how calming is it to sit on the, a sandy beach or to, or the sense of accomplishment that you have when you climb to the top of a mountain in a very rigorous hike or the sense of euphoria that you have after a run outside in the early morning and you've beaten your personal best, you've beaten your personal time record, whatever, and you have that almost this endorphin high that's all part of being outside. I don't know about you, but I always, always, always get a stronger sense of accomplishment, a, a higher a higher runner's high, I guess, when I'm running outside as opposed to running on a treadmill. There's just something about nature that gets into the bones, that gets into our lived realities. But if our minds are closed to just what the world has to offer, to just what creation and nature has to offer, it becomes that much harder to see. But when we let it in, when we open our hearts, it really does deeply shape our eyes and our ears and how we view the planet. Um, as I said before, this is really difficult, particularly in Western society, because for many of us, for a really long time, the narrative is the world is a resource for us to plunder and use for our own gain. Um, but the thing is when the earth itself is a vital member of our community, when we actually begin viewing the earth as our mother, as mother earth, um, when we start viewing the earth as kin, as someone like Elizabeth Johnson might say, that changes the way that we view the natural resources. It changes the way that we view oil and energy consumption. Um, it changes how we move through our lives. It changes how we look at how produce is made. It changes our views of the beef industry or big agriculture industry or the meat industry in general. It changes so much within our lives because it is such a foundational aspect of our lives. Because ultimately we are deeply connected 
to nature. It goes back to that creation myth. It goes back to the fact that we're all made of stardust. We all share the same molecular makeup. We are all sharers in the divine spirit of love. We're all a part of it. The As I record this podcast now, I'm on my um, in the second floor of our house, and there's in our neighborhood, there are a bunch of old trees. And right now I am looking out at the trees in front of me as I record this podcast. And I can tell you right now that these trees that I'm looking at that are bursting forth with new green spring leaves are just as vibrantly pulsing with the divine source as you or I am. And that is something that deeply deeply impacts you to a point where it's almost difficult to put it into words. As I sat down and wrote this podcast this week, it was really difficult for me to really be able to put this into words because it's it's almost something that's primordial within us. Our connection to the planet is something that is always has always been in us. Um, but especially in Western society, we don't necessarily have that teaching to go along with this sense of connection that we have. We don't necessarily have this narrative that's pumping through our society that says, yes, it's all important. At, at least in the United States, it's really hard to hear that narrative when you're being bombarded by, buy this t-shirt, buy this new car, buy this new house, buy this new gizmo gadget, what's a who's it? Um, but there's almost this primordial sense deep within our bones that says, but all of this, all of this planet is something that you are deeply connected to. And as we'll talk about in next week's episode, when our minds begin to make the shift, when we're able to take that step into believing and seeing that the world is our mother, our brother, our father, our sister, a vital member of our community, it becomes particularly impactful in an age where climate change and consumerism runs rampant. And we are going to talk about that next week. I know this podcast is a little bit shorter, but that doesn't make it any less powerful, at least not in my mind. But until we talk about climate change and consumerism next week, I encourage you to rest in the knowledge that you and everything around you bears the mark of sacred worth and infinite value. And that is the root that we must grow from. That is the first step that we must take in order to make effective and positive change for the life of ourselves, for the life of our communities, and for the life of our planet. Until next week, peace and love, y'all.